Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. Happy Easter. Thank you so much for coming on out and giving us an hour of your time, particularly at the 9 a.m. service. We really appreciate it. So this week, I was sort of reminiscing on all the Easter's that have gone by, and I was thinking about how a few years ago, and I don't know if you were with us, we got a lot of new people here, but if you were with us a couple of years ago on Easter, I gave you guys really what I believe to be one of the most important lessons I've ever sort of taught at church. And if you had listened to this sort of lesson, if you had internalized this lesson, if you put it into practice, and that's the most important thing, Jesus and his brother James say, it's not so much you hear something, you've got to put it into your practice. If, if you put this lesson into practice, you would be a different person today. You'd be a better version of yourself today. And the lesson was how to eat peace, okay? You throw that, you just throw it right in the trash, that piece of garbage candy. Is it even candy? I don't even know what it, Adam and I were like, what food group is this thing? It's like a tissue with sand on it. It's disc- anyway, this week I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw something that just shook me to my very core. I mean, honestly, I saw this thing and it scared me. The, you know, the Bible talks about certain things you're going to see when you're getting near the end times. And I saw this and I couldn't believe with my own eyes that Cold Stone Creamery is making peep ice cream. Dear God, help us all. Look at that. Listen, we don't judge here at this church, but if you eat this, you're on your own. <laughs> so I just couldn't, but I'm like, is there anything worse? Anyway, in spite of this crime against humanity, we are here today celebrating Easter. Now, what does that mean to celebrate Easter? I was thinking about this. Easter is not a celebration of Christianity. Easter is not a celebration of the teachings of Jesus Christ. Easter, really, when you think about it, is not even a celebration of Jesus Christ himself. Easter is a celebration of a specific event that took place in history, and that is the resurrection. And Easter is actually kind of similar to the 4th of July in a way, that 4th of July is a celebration not of America. It is a celebration of a specific event, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Now, over time, what has happened to 4th of July has kind of happened to Easter as well. Over time, 4th of July has become more about barbecues and, and parades and fireworks and America. And you could go a whole day, literally, having not thought once about the fact that on this day, the Declaration of Independence was signed. Same goes for Easter. I mean, not for any of you guys, but I mean, it's more about, you know, what are we going to wear to church on Easter, right? We've got to look different on Easter. Are we going to do an Easter egg hunt? Are we going to talk about the Easter bunny? What are we going to have for dinner? Is it going to be a brunch? Is it going to be a lunch? What are we going to cook? Who's going to get invited? And you could go the entire day without having spent one single moment remembering that today is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. The most important history, most important event in all of history. Easter is so vitally important that had the resurrection not happened, there would be no Christianity. There really wouldn't be. I mean, we don't think about that, but that really is the case. There's a guy named Paul. Many of you know Paul. Paul is this guy who was a Jewish leader. He hated Christians. Oh, he hated them so much he would chase them down, throw them in jail, stone them, kill them if he could. He persecuted them to no end. And then one day Paul met the resurrected Jesus Christ, and his life was changed forever. He actually became a Christian. He went on to write over half of the New Testament. He started churches all over the Mediterranean Rim. And one day he wrote a letter to a group of believers in the city of Corinth. 
And he was talking to them about what would happen if the resurrection didn't take place. And he goes, if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching, meaning all the New Testament authors, all of our preaching is useless. And your faith, useless. He's like, look, guys, I just got to be honest with you. If Easter didn't really happen, everything, everything you read in the New Testament, useless. Throw it out with the peeps, right? And we go, oh, no, Paul. I mean, there's some good stuff in there. I mean, we, we read the love chapter at our wedding. That killed. People love that stuff. And he goes, well, I'm glad you liked it. Thanks for the encouragement. But that was all based on the fact that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And if he didn't raise from the grave, then he's not. He goes so far to say, is, look, if you believe in Christ, that's fine. But if he did not actually, physically, bodily, and literally come back from the grave, then your faith in him is useless. But, Paul says, and this is the greatest but in all of Scripture, because of this but, Christmas has greater meaning. Because of this but, Good Friday takes on new magnitude. And because of this but, every single word in the New Testament matters. You can lean on it, you can trust it, you can believe it. But, Paul says, Christ has indeed, there's our word, been raised from the dead. And we are here today to pause to reflect, and to remember this event. So it is fair to say that when it comes to the resurrection, it is a bit of a sticking point for some people. They have a hard time kind of wrapping their minds around the fact that Jesus literally, bodily, physically came back to life. And I have met many Christians, self-professed Christians, who really do wrestle with this idea of a physical resurrection. Now, if that's you, I'm glad you're here. And you'll be happy to know that you're not the only one. In fact, there are many, many people who doubted the resurrection. And what you may not know is that none of Jesus' followers expected the resurrection, which shocks me every time I read the Easter account because Jesus literally told them it was going to happen, like word for word. Never mind the fact that the Old Testament speaks about the resurrection occurring. These men and women, these followers and disciples of Jesus Christ, they literally heard it from the horse's mouth and yet didn't expect it. Now, how do I know this? Simple. When Jesus died, they all went home. When they saw him take his last breath, it was game over. They went back to their houses and they hid in fear. And if they really and truly believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be and would rise from the grave, they would have camped outside that tomb. It would have been like Apple releasing a new phone. They would have been there three days just waiting for that tomb. To, Boys, it's going to happen. Sun's coming up. Get that 10. Now, here it comes. I can feel it, right? And then he comes out, and they all clap, and they slap each other on the back. Man, our faith is great, isn't it? Wow. That didn't happen. See, what did happen is that the disciples saw Jesus die, and they expected him to stay dead. And today, I want to show you how this unfolds. To do this, we are going to look at the gospel according to Luke. Now, if you don't know Luke, Luke was a medical doctor. Luke lets us know that he sort of took it upon himself to research the claims of Christ, to speak to the eyewitnesses, to put it all together and give us a source that we can trust and believe. And I want to show you his findings. Specifically, we're going to look at what Luke found out about what happened right after the crucifixion. We're going to start in chapter 23, and we'll be in verses 50 to begin with. Here's what Luke tells us. Now, 
There was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, sort of the Jewish leadership, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. I'll get into that in a second. It continues. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. So we meet this guy named Joseph of Arimathea. That's sort of how we talk about Joseph. And we learn a couple of things. Number one, we learn that he was righteous. He was a good and upright man. Number two, as it lets us know, he was part of this council, this Jewish leadership. But as it says, he disagreed with their actions and their decisions, meaning he did not agree with the fact that they were going to arrest Jesus. He did not want him to get tried, and he really did not want him to get crucified. Why? Well, it turns out he was a secret follower of Jesus Christ. There were many Jewish folks in leadership at that time who were afraid to talk about their faith. Now, the last thing we learn about Joseph, and what's so interesting, is that Luke doesn't tell us this fact, but Matthew lets us know that Joseph was a rich man. Now, that might not sound important, but it is. And you're going to see why in just a second. It continues. Going to Pilate, now that's the man who is the, sort of the Roman ruler in the area. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. And he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. So this rich guy, Joseph, takes it upon himself to get Jesus off the cross and bury it in his own tomb. That's an important little detail, because 740 years earlier, literally, over 700 years earlier, the great prophet Isaiah was prophesying, speaking about the coming Messiah. Here's what you're going to see. When you see these things, you know you're going to be dealing with the Messiah. And 740 years earlier, Isaiah said this. From prison and trial, they led him away to his death. But who among the people of that day realized it was their sins that he was dying for, that he was suffering for their punishment. This literally sounds like it could be in the New Testament, talking about the Easter account. But wait, there's more. This is what I really wanted to show you. He was buried like a criminal, but in a rich man's grave. But he had done no wrong and had never spoken an evil word. 740 years before Jesus Christ was even born, God is telling us that the Messiah would die like a criminal, but he would be buried in a rich man's grave, Joseph of Arimathea. You look at the Old Testament, it is littered with prophecies about the coming Messiah. God literally handed us the playbook on how to spot the Savior of the world when he gets here, and they missed it. They missed it. Now let's go back and look at the verse that Luke was saying. So he gets the body down wraps it in linen, and he puts it in the tomb. Now, this sounds sort of all well and good to our ears, but this right here would be a red flag for any first century Jew because they knew that a proper burial would require the body to be washed, and that didn't happen. They, they knew that a proper burial would, would have, the body would be uh, anointed with 75 to 100 pounds of spices and oils, and that didn't happen. Then, carefully, the body would be wrapped with strips of linen that had been soaked and spiced resin, and that doesn't appear to have happened. And furthermore, this was a job that was traditionally and historically done by women. And that didn't happen. So why didn't any of that happen? What was going on? Luke tells us. He says, 
It was preparation day. And the Sabbath was about to begin. Basically, it was a race against the clock for Joseph. Sabbath begins that Friday night at sundown. And according to the fourth commandment, and we went over this, that means that for Jews, all work must stop. Preparation day means you got to get everything ready for tomorrow because tomorrow you can't do anything. Now, on top of that, Joseph has another command that's coming down on him, which says that any person who had been hanged or crucified must be buried that same day. So Joseph has got like no time. Bible says Jesus died at 3 p.m. Now, Joseph had to go to Pilate, get through all that red tape, I'm sure. It's got to be at least 5 p.m. So they're trying to get Jesus into that tomb as fast as possible. Basically, they're doing a rush job on Jesus. Well, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph, saw the tomb and how the body was laid in it, and then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. In other words, they're watching these guys do a terrible job. Right? It's like, man, it's like when your wife asks you to do a chore and you, do, and you purposely do a bad job so that she never asks you to do it again. By the way, they're on to us. Okay, these women who are like Jesus' roadies, they've been there since the beginning. They're like, stop, stop, stop. All right, we've got to do everything ourselves, all right? We will fix this. We'll get the spices. We'll do everything. We should have done this in the first place. Just go home, men. Go home. Luke adds that these women, like the men, rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. In other words, we're going to come back on Sunday. We're going to come back in three days to finish the job, to properly prepare the body. So don't miss this. Why did these women decide to properly prepare the body? Why did they decide that we're going to come back on Sunday in three days to get the body finished up? Because Jesus was dead. And they assumed he would stay dead. Story continues. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday morning, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. And the reason they went to the tomb is because they expected the body to be there. And when they arrived, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. So I'm going to show you exactly what these women saw. I want to show you what a, a, a first century rolling tomb is what they're called, what this looks like. So here's a picture of what the tomb most likely looked like. So there are stairs that descend into this door, and this door is actually quite small. You'd have to bend down to get inside of it. Now what's interesting, off the left, you're going to see the stone. That stone, they let us know, weighs upwards of 2,000 pounds. And it was placed in a trench, almost like a pocket door, like you have in your bathroom or something. And when the tomb was ready to be sealed, they would release the stone, and it would roll down, and it would seal off the door. And so Friday night, when Joseph was done with the body, he would have sealed the tomb. Now, you're smart people, and you're probably wondering, well... If the tomb was sealed, how were these women planning to get in there to anoint the body of Jesus? Great question. In the Gospel of Mark, the women actually ask that very question. They say to one another, so who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? See, it wasn't that the stone couldn't be rolled away. It could. History just lets us know it's very difficult to move. It would take several men. They would need levers. It's a whole thing. So the miracle wasn't necessarily that the stone was rolled away. The stone was rolled away so they could see the miracle. The miracle was that when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. And nobody expected that. Now, 
while they were wondering about this. I love this. They're looking at each other. They're going, uh, are we in the right tomb? Because like, this was the, where'd the body go? What's going on here? Where, at no point does anyone go, you know what this is? The resurrection. <laughs> it's like they're just standing there looking at each other, dumbfounded. Suddenly, it says, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. These are angels. Now, in their fright, because people are always afraid of angels, in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces in the ground. But the men said to them, I love this, why do you look for the living among the dead? I love that question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? In other words, why are you here looking for Jesus? Uh, I don't know. Because he's dead? I mean, what do you think? We're carrying all this stuff for our health? We thought he was dead. We saw him die. We saw his body. We saw them laid in here. And then the angels famously reply, he is not here. He is risen. They go, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day raised again. And I love this. Then they remembered. It's like, oh, yeah. You know what? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, re- I remember him saying that now. My fault. This is embarrassing, right? Now, yeah, I knew we were missing something. Now this makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. So now after receiving this amazing news from the angels about Jesus, the women leave the garden, they leave this tomb, and they go back to find the disciples to alert them as to what has just taken place. When they came back from the tomb, They told all these things to the 11 now and to all the others. Notice there's only 11 disciples now because Judas, oh, we don't talk about Judas anymore. So the women explained to them that the tomb is empty. Jesus is not there. He's alive. He has come back from the grave just as he said he would. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. And this word nonsense is really interesting. Luke, as I told you, was a medical doctor. This right here in the Greek is actually a medical term. And it describes the ramblings of someone who is delirious. So these 11 disciples who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, did ministry with Jesus, saw Jesus do all kinds of miracles. They hear the news of the resurrection and they saw it as the ramblings of an insane person. Why? Because they did not expect the resurrection. They saw him murdered on that cross. They saw him take his last breath. He was dead. Peter, however, got up, ran to the tomb, bending over, going in those little steps, bending over, He saw strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. He looks into this empty tomb, and he's confused. Who moved the stone? Where's the body? Why would somebody steal the body and take the time to take the linen strips off and and just leave them there? This doesn't make any sense. And he walked away wondering what had happened to Jesus. And I'm just picturing this scene in my mind. And I'm seeing him kind of walking down the dusty trail, walking back into town, just considering what the women said. And he's just like, what 
what if, I mean, what if Jesus really did rose from the grave? Like what? I mean, if this really happened, the ramifications are immense. I mean, if Jesus rose from the dead, ev- everything he said about himself was true. <laughs> if Jesus rose from the dead, everything he said about God was true. I mean, if Jesus rose from the dead, that, that means I really can pray to God directly. I can call him my heavenly father. Oh my gosh, you know. If Jesus rose from the dead, that means my sins really are forgiven. If Jesus rose from the dead, that means he really was the son of God. And if Jesus rose from the dead, that means he really was the Messiah. Thankfully, Scripture tells us, Peter wouldn't have to wonder much longer. Later that evening, a few short hours later, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands, he showed them their side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw their Lord, because Jesus was alive and he was well and he was standing right there with them. Now, I've said this before and I'll say it again and I think scripture backs me up. Those disciples, if they did not really believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be until he came back from the grave. And we look at those 12 men and we kind of see them as these giants of the faith, but they were fearful and their faith was weak. But when that resurrection happened, it changed them. When those men saw the resurrected Christ, it emboldened them and it set them on a course to change the world. So much so, three weeks later, just three short weeks, this miraculous event happens in Jerusalem called the Pentecost. We don't got to get into what all that is. But this movement of God happens and thousands upon thousands of people witness it and they're going, what the heck was that? What did we just see? And Peter, this man who never expected the resurrection, Peter, this man who denied even knowing Jesus when a young girl said, hey, is that your buddy over there? No. Steps up to the challenge of explaining to this massive audience what has just occurred. And emboldened by the resurrection, that empty tomb, Peter then delivers what is now known as the very first Christian sermon. Thousands of people steps up onto a box and he says, Jewish men, listen to what I have to say. You knew Jesus of the town of Nazareth by the powerful works he did. God worked through Jesus while he was with you and you all know this. In other words, don't pretend like you don't know who I'm talking about. You all know Jesus. You saw Jesus. You met Jesus. You heard his teachings. I saw you at the Sermon on the Mount. You saw the miracles. You know exactly who I'm talking about. And that man, Jesus, was sent to you by God. And this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. He looks at those thousands of people and he goes, you killed him. 
God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we all are witnesses of this. I don't just believe it's true because I want it to be true. I know it's true because I've seen it with my own eyes. In fact, Paul would let us know that over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. Therefore, Peter says. Now, before I put on the screen what he said, you just got to know this. What Peter's about to say could have gotten him killed. What he's about to say to this crowd could have gotten him stoned on the spot. He might be speaking to his fellow Jews, but he is not amongst friends. These are the very people that just killed Jesus. And in this moment, I just picture Peter digging down deep, calling on this newfound power of the Holy Spirit, leaning on the resurrection power that is promised to every single one of us. And he proclaims, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God, has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And the crowd goes silent. Having just heard this blasphemous claim, and I picture Peter standing there just shaking with adrenaline, wondering, what's going to happen now? Did I go too far? Because now the crowd has a decision to make. Do we stone him? Do we crucify him like we did to his leader? Or do we laugh and just walk away? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. In spite of everything they had said, everything they had done in the preceding weeks, months, In years, those Jews knew. They knew, they knew that what Peter was saying was true. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? It is the most important question they will ever ask in their entire lives. Peter, you were right. We were wrong about Jesus. What do we do? Peter replies, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. What an amazing scene. Peter had every right to be angry at these people. They killed his friend. They killed his master. But he looks at them and he says, you got to do what I did. You got to repent. You got to change your mind. You got to say, I was wrong, I believe. And then he says, you got to get baptized. That's Peter's way of saying, you got to go public with your faith. You got to let people know that you have made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, that he is the one who has saved you from your sins, that he is your savior. Peter, having seen the empty tomb, was convinced that even those individuals who had killed the Son of God could be forgiven of their sins if they would just recognize Jesus for who he is, the Messiah, the Savior. Those who believed, we learn, those who believed what he said were baptized, and there were about 3,000 more followers added that day, and the church was born.
And you read the rest of Acts, and you see the church just grow and grow and grow, and it has not stopped. And Downtown Harbor Church is here today. And I am here today. And you are here today because of what happened in that church. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it is your first time here at DHC, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. Now the truth is I was reading this story this week and I was saying to myself, what is the practical? What do you do when you hear the story of the resurrection? And then it dawned on me. Every single person here who hears the story of the resurrection has to get to a place in their lives where they ask the very same question that crowd asked. What shall we do? Because the story of Easter demands a response. The empty tomb demands a response. And if there's something in your heart today that goes, I just think what I just heard is true. I never really thought about it like that. I can't claim to understand it all, but there's just something that is drawing me to Jesus, right? You'd say, I'd be lying if I didn't say I was a little nervous about this, but I just can't ignore it anymore. What shall I do? Peter would say, well, you got to repent. Now, let's be honest. When we hear this particular word, it sounds aggressive. We kind of picture sweaty pastors yelling over podium, ah, repent! And that's a turnoff. I mean, I understand what they're saying, and I don't even like that. But let's examine what Peter actually said, because Peter didn't speak English. He didn't say the word repent. He used a Greek word, metanoia, which means to think differently. It's actually a word picture. If you're going one way in life, we talk about it, repenting of sins. You're going one way in life, then you metanoia, you change. You're the opposite direction. And maybe for most of your life, you looked at Jesus and you thought his teachings were good good teacher, solid teacher, excellent leader, maybe even a prophet. What do I know? But then you get to the resurrection, and it's like, eh, that's enough. Mm. And for most of your life, you walked away from Christ. I think if Peter were here today, he would say, today can be the day. Today can be the day. Past can be the past. Repent. Metanoia. Change the way you think. And instead of walking away from Christ, embrace him. Embrace the Savior of the world who died and rose from the grave specifically for you and me. And in an instant, in an instant, you, like those 3,000 people in Jerusalem that day, can be made right with the creator of the universe. Let me pray for you. Dearly Father, I want to thank you that since the beginning of time, you set a plan into motion to save us from our sins. And that nothing was going to stop that, not even death. And Lord, it is hard to express our gratitude for what you did in that tomb and on that cross. But Lord, today we are everything because of you. 
We have new life because of what happened on that cross and in that tomb. We can be new people. The past can be the past. Our sins can be forgiven. We can have a fresh lease on life. And we can be welcomed into eternity because of the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray, Lord, that if, if there is someone here today that has not known your son personally, I pray that today they would be convicted, that they would be cut to the heart. And they might say, you know, all along I kind of figured. I saw my parents' faith. I saw my grandparents' faith. But I just pushed back. But today, I can't push back anymore. Move in this room, Lord. Change us from the inside out. We ask all this in Jesus' name.